Uh, we're in Hebrews 11 this morning, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles. That was a wonderful time of worship this morning, wasn't it? A really good time meeting uh, with God together. I'm going to introduce myself here. I'm James. I'm one of the pastors here, if we've not met before. Um, we're doing a series called Faith for Life, where we're looking at these mini-biographies in Hebrews 11. They're stories of people of who are ordinary people, really. Um, who lived lives of faith in God. Um, We're looking at their stories to help us persevere by faith through the suffering, struggles, setbacks and stagnation that we can experience. All of us will probably know of people who at some point were really going for it with God. Walking with him, seemed on fire as it were, really enjoying relationship with him and at some point um, just fell away from things, drifted off, Uh, perhaps no longer part of the church, maybe saying they don't believe anymore. Um, And we're looking really to, what can we do to stay the course? How can we stay the course in the Christian life? How can we persevere um, by faith? And uh, these uh, mini biographies in Hebrews 11 will really help us uh, to do that. And today we're looking at the story of Moses. Previously, I've gone into the Old Testament text and told the story. If I'd done that, we'd have been reading 11 chapters and then we would have all gone home. So I thought rather than that, uh, Hebrews actually gives a really helpful summary. So I thought we'd just stick in uh, Hebrews this morning and I'll tell a bit of the story as I read the passage. Um, So it's Hebrews 11 verses 23 to 28. Alec, do you mind moving on to the next slide for me? Um, Because the clicker's not working. Thanks. So Hebrews 11, 23 to 28. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. By that they mean he was destined for something great. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. The king's edict was that all the male children uh, that were Israelites uh, should be killed. And so his parents put him in a basket into the river And he drifted downstream into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter, who then went and found a Hebrew to raise him, which um, was uh, Moses' own mother. And she nursed him in his younger years before he returned to the palace and grew up in uh, Pharaoh's court and was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Uh, There was a a point uh, in Moses' life where he decided to identify himself as a Hebrew and to visit his people. And uh, and then it says this, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of of the anger of the king, For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Um, Moses' first attempt at leading the Israelite people had been that he'd seen an Egyptian master beating a Hebrew slave. And Moses intervened to stop the Egyptian master from beating him. But he went over the top and killed the Egyptian master. Moses thought that the Hebrews would be really kind of glad. Hey, you intervened. You kind of saved me from a beating there. But actually... They, they said, you know, who made you kind of lord over us? Who made you a king over us? Who's made you to, to lead us? It didn't go down so well. It was a, a failed attempt. But he, he, he feared um, that situation and, 
uh, how people might respond to him in that. But he didn't fear what Pharaoh thought of him and his decision to leave. And so he, he went into exile for 40 years, um, lived um, uh, a life as a foreigner in another land. He married Zipporah. He had two sons with her. And he spent 40 years looking after his father-in-law Jethro's sheep. And he spent 40 years of waiting, for preparing for God's call to materialize and to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt into freedom. And it says this, verse 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn, firstborn might not touch them. He had this encounter, you might remember the story of God in a burning bush. And God called him to come and be Israel's deliverer to lead them out of Egypt. And so he returns after 40 years, the age of 80, to lead people out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, And he does that by 10 plagues. You've probably heard the story, seen the film Prince of Egypt. 10 plagues come. And the last one is that um, all of the children, the firstborn in the land... Uh, are going to die. The angel of death is going to pass over. And, uh, and Moses says, if you paint the blood of a goat or a lamb over your doorpost, it will pass over and there'll be no death in that household. Pre, kind of prefiguring, looking forward to the time when Jesus' blood would protect us from, the de- from death, which is the inevitable consequence of our sin. I wonder if you read the book, The Screwtape uh, Letters, um, written by C.S. Lewis of Narnia fame. Um, this, the whole point of the book is that there's this senior devil who's instructing a junior devil who's given this new Christian to kind of tempt and harass and to discourage and lead into despair and essentially to destroy. And the senior uh, devil instructor tells this junior devil this. He says, the great thing is to prevent his doing anything. The great thing is to prevent his doing anything. As long as he doesn't convert it into action, it doesn't matter how much he thinks about his new repentance. Let the little brute wallow in it. Let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. And the reason he wrote that was because faith is always active. Faith is is a doing thing. It's something you do. It's an active thing. And it always, as well, perseveres. It endures to the end. True saving faith perseveres to the end. And so we're going to look this morning at five things that Moses did. Five things he did by faith in order to persevere through the sufferings, the setbacks and the struggles that he experienced in order to help us consider how to live and act in faith and persevere too. If it's a problem, just don't worry about it because can, we can do it without the PowerPoint. Uh, the first thing is this. By faith, Moses refused the fleeting pleasures of sin. It says in verse 24 and 25, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What Moses did was he surrendered up, refused. He said no to the identity, the status, the comforts, the reputation, the honour and the fleeting pleasures of Egyptian royalty. There was a lifestyle that he surrendered and gave up, refused to be identified with, that he said no to. Because he could have identified as 
the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he could have enjoyed the fleeting, but nevertheless the pleasures of sin. You know, there were the things that he could enjoy. You know, life would have been good for him. Would have been nice. Would have been, enjoyed it. He would have been part of the Egyptian royalty, uh, the ruling class. Potential high office was in store for him. The influence in a vast empire, wealth and its riches, honor, reputation amongst people, fame, world-class education. These were the things that Moses gave up. He said no to. Um, he gave, said no to the fleeting pleasures of sin. You might have heard the story of C.T. Studd, who was uh, born in the 1800s, uh, became one of England's greatest cricketers of his day, um, quite a famous uh, sports star of the day, a successful English cricketer, who similarly surrendered his status, the honour and reputation that he had in the sport, and the comfort that came with that as a, rec- a nationally recognised sportsman in order to become a missionary in China. Similar kind of thing to what Moses did here in the passage. It says this in Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it teaches us, what? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Teaches us, the grace of God teaches us, salvation teaches us to say no to things to refuse things, to surrender things that we otherwise might enjoy. Uh, I read uh, something this week about how to capture a monkey. Um, This wasn't pointless web surfing. This was in a book I was seriously studying for this morning. And it tells you that apparently if you want to capture a monkey, what you need to do is cover an apple with syrup, stick it in a cup that's just the right size, so that the monkey can get its hand around the apple. But when it closes its hand, it can no longer get it out of the cup. And you've just got to make sure that the cup is tethered to the ground. I don't know how you would do that. And you know what? The monkey could just let go of the apple covered in syrup and just pull his hand out and say, sit to me, I don't want, to, don't want to get caught. But monkeys don't. They put their hand in, they grab the apple, and they won't let go of it. They won't let go of it. So if you ever need to, that's how you capture a monkey. (laughs) And we can be a bit like that with sin, with the fleeting pleasures of sin. Ooh, what's that? And then instead of just letting go, refusing, saying no, surrendering, no, I'm enjoying this. This is good for the moment. And we keep hold of the apple and foolishly we get caught up in it. And that's what sin can be like. And what Moses did was, he let go of the apple, and he, he was set free. Now I wonder if uh, some of us here, God would say, well, you've got your hand on an apple. You've reached into the cup, taken a hold of it, and he says, just let go of it. Grace of God helps you to say no to things. Let go of the apple, let it be, surrender it up, refuse it, and let go. And when we do that, God says, when you, when you do that, when you confess your sin, um, it's often helpful to do it out loud just to name it, that God, the God will remind you of his forgiveness. But then you don't have to wallow, oh, that apple I was holding, oh, silly me, 
kind of self-flagellate and beat yourself up about it to kind of make up for it. No, Jesus has died for that sin, the grabbing of the apple, so you don't have to wallow in self-pity about it. You don't have to beat yourself up about it. The forgiveness of God is immediately there for you. And you just have to receive his forgiveness. Remind yourself of his forgiveness. And then it's good to confide it in a friend. You know, if you're holding on to the apple, you just need somebody to hold you accountable, to encourage you, to strengthen you for resisting it. Because the apple's still there, isn't it? You know, even when you say no to it, you take your hand off. It's still there, isn't it? All the time you think, oh. And I don't know if you've had that experience as a Christian. It's something you really don't want to do. But just keep going. Oh, apple's so nice. Over and over again, you think, no, I shouldn't hold that apple. That apple, no. Oh, I shouldn't touch that apple. Oh, that apple. Over and over again. The forgiveness of God is never-ending for you. If you're in Christ, Jesus has died for that again and again. And what we need is friends alongside us, don't we? To say, hey, don't pick up the apple. You don't need that. Grace of God helps you to say No. Uh, the second thing is this, that by faith, Moses chose God's people, it says in verse 25, rather than uh, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Faith means saying no to some things, but it means saying yes to other things, making a choice. And Moses' choice was decisive. It affected his whole life. He, he said no to Egyptian royalty and instead chose contempt with God's people, slavery, poverty, humility with God's people instead. That's what he chose. He didn't want ill treatment. He wasn't a sadist. He wasn't wanting it. But it was part of the deal of identifying, choosing to identify with God's people instead. One writer says this, whatever Moses' social position, if he'd remained on as a member of Egyptian society, all we would know of him now would be as a name on a mummy in the British Museum. And yet he's got books after books after everybody's heard of Moses. There's films about him, even in our culture. And in hindsight, it looks like an easy choice. Well, of course Moses chose that. It's a good choice. It's turned out well for him. He delivers God's people from Egypt. But at the time, Moses' choice looked like utter madness. What? Egyptian royalty for contempt, poverty, humility of God's people. It just seemed madness. Earlier in Genesis, um, Jacob, Jacob had been promised this by God. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. It was a great promise over the Israelites. And yet the reality at this time for the people of God was growing poverty, disgrace, discrimination, injustice, slavery, and infanticide. Their children were being murdered. That was the reality for the people of God. And just like in Joseph's stories... Faith can trust where it cannot track the ways of God. Moses trusted God even though he couldn't track how that was going to be a good choice or decision. Uh, This week I saw an illustration of Noah's Ark being met by a 1900s ocean liner. Beautiful ocean liner, you know, with all all the trappings of of a cruise. You know, real stylish, you know, good looking thing. And Noah's old ark, (laughs) built of wood by Noah and his sons. And there was this plank from Noah's ark onto the ocean liner to take people away. People were choosing this old boat. It's going to do nothing for me. 
getting on the plank and walking onto the ocean liner. And then in the next scene, in the next picture, you see a smattering of people on the ark. They've decided to stay. They've chosen to identify with God's people. And you see the ocean liner going off into the distance with SS Titanic written on the back of it. (laughs) And that's what it's like. We make a choice that, to us, just doesn't seem to make sense. Like Moses, it, it feels a bit like madness. Maybe sometimes you even question yourself, why have I made this decision to follow Jesus and all that it it involves? But when God spoke to you, one of the things he shouted was, iceberg ahead. Iceberg ahead. Fleeting pleasures of sin. There's an iceberg ahead. And graciously, we heard that, heard his call, and decided to stay on the ark. But by faith choosing the contempt and humility of being called a Christian when really it's not all that impressive out there in the world. It's not something you jump to say to somebody so that they'll be impressed by you. Following the Lord Jesus involves a choice, choosing God's people, church family, instead of the fleeting pleasures of sin. And following God commands new allegiances, doesn't it? New priorities, new lifestyles. wonder what God's asking of you at the moment in terms of choosing God's people. Maybe it's refusing another night of hobbying or Netflix or whatever it might be to choose God's people to gather to pray with them or be together in house group. Maybe it's to refuse yourself more free time in order to serve in some way. Maybe it's refusing yourself admiration, acceptance, reputation to choose the contempt of being known as a Christian. The third thing that Moses did was he considered... God's reward. Verse uh, 26 says this, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to that reward. What was it that led Moses to the madness of that decision? What was it that motivated him? Why did he choose reproach and disgrace of being numbered amongst God's people? What was in it for Moses? When you make a decision, we're rational people, aren't you? You make it for a reason. Because there's something there's something better. You can see something you think, that's motivating me to make this decision. I can see ahead there's, there's something. And for Moses, it was the same. He was looking ahead to some reward. Something in the distance, something in the future, which motivated him to make the decision. It's this idea of delayed gratification, isn't it? Which uh, we're teaching our children all the time. No now... But yes to this later. And you know, as a parent, you're you're always trying to go, you you don't want to do that now, i.e. no. (laughs) But in the future, there might be an ice cream at the end of the day. And they're going, no, I want this now. No. So they're teaching delayed gratification. And there's a bit of this going on in Moses' decision as well. He's giving up this palace life, royal lifestyle, a wealthy inheritance, all the safety and security that's assumed with a position, trusting that God would vindicate his decision on the last day. Moses got out of the palace essentially while the going was good. He understood the concept that if life is a rope that stretches round the earth billions of times, life is just our life, earthly life here is but just the first centimetre of the rope. And he could enjoy something for that very short time here and now. But he didn't want to risk giving up the rest of the rope and the reward 
that was ahead. You might have heard of that story of Eric um, Liddell, who is the, known as the Flying Scotsman. He was a 100-metre uh, sprinter. Um, his story is told in the film Chariots of Fire, if you've, if you've seen it. And uh, he refused to run in 100 metres in the Olympic uh, final because it was his conviction that Sunday should be kept um, uh, special. And the heats were on a Sunday, so he, he didn't uh, take part and instead, he chose to preach at a church in Paris on the same day of the race. As a result, he was accused of being a traitor to his nation. But the reality is for Eric, he desired God's approval more than Olympic gold. He desired God's reward more than he did Olympic gold. Sometimes we can think that the Christian life is... Uh, and the things that you do in the Christian life, the decisions you make, the choices you make, you should make and you should do without any thought of what you might get in return. You know, the idea of true altruism. You know, I do things um, without any expectation of return. Um, true altruism just doesn't exist in Christianity. It's just not a thing. It's not possible. Because one of the things that we're hardwired for as humans is this desire for reward, this desire for something in return. And the Bible continually teaches this idea that we're to live for reward, just not one right now. Have a listen to these verses. This is Jesus in Matthew five twelve. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth saying, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. P- uh, Peter writes this, And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Paul writes to his uh, spiritual son, Timothy, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to those who have longed for his appearing. That's the Christian life we're to look and long for, the day when Jesus returns, when the decision to follow him, even though looking foolish to many, is vindicated and his return. And we get the reward of a a crown of righteousness. If we live by faith like Moses and we fix our eyes on the reward he's offering, Lord Jesus is offering, and long for his appearing, then we're living for a good reward. Don't slip into living for the praise and admiration and applause of people temporarily in the here and now. It's not worth living for. The Lord's reward is worth waiting for. The Lord's reward is worth waiting for. Uh, Fourth, uh, by faith Moses endured Exile says in verse 27, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses uh, essentially left um, Egypt without Pharaoh's permission, and yet he'd grown up in his court, and it would have been expected to have done that. But he didn't fear what Pharaoh thought of his decision. And he spent 40 years in exile, settled as a foreigner, married Zipporah, had two sons, and persevered and endured by faith for 40 years. Moses had this expectation that he was going to lead God's people, deliver them from Egypt. That was what was in his heart. That's what he wanted to do. And yet this first attempt where he had killed the Egyptian had failed. 
And as a result, he'd, he'd fled, gone into exile, but it never left his heart. For 40 years, he waited for that time when he would still play a part in delivering pe- uh, God's people from slavery in Egypt. He didn't crumble at his first failed attempt at leadership, but he waited patiently for God. And he waited patiently for 40 years. That encounter with the Egyptian where he was beating the Hebrew slave happened when he was 40 and he returned when he was 80. He waited from 40 to 80 to do the thing that God had for him. (laughs) I mean, some of you know that distance, 40 to 80. It's not a short time, is it? I've not even started it yet. (laughs) I'm not bragging. I just haven't. 40, 40 to 80 is a lot. It's a long period, isn't it? It's a long time. And Moses is there looking after sheep. He's not like his hands aren't busy. He's sat in the field watching sheep. That's what he's doing. Sat down on the grass, listening to the brook, watching the sheep eat grass. For 40 years, I mean, occasionally busy if a wolf came along. But most of the time, you've got a lot of time to think. About that time when he killed that Egyptian and he had to run away. A long time, 40 years. We're in a hurry, but God isn't. And then one day he has that encounter with God in the, in the burning bush and he gets the call. Moses hadn't tried to invent his own way of doing things. He hadn't tried to run away from it, but he was patient. Why was he patient? How did he endure? It says in the passage, he saw him who was invisible. He was convinced of the reality of God. Convinced of the reality of this invisible God. He had an encounter with him. He was convinced of who he was. And that's the thing that meant he didn't fear what Pharaoh would think of his decision. And he was able to leave Egypt. And it enabled him for 40 years to persevere by faith that God would still use him to do the thing that was on his heart to do. Helped him persevere through exile, through obscurity, far from the role he thought God had for him. And the outcome was that during that time, Moses learned to be God's servant, not the Israelites' new master. He learned to be a prophet of God, not a prince of Egypt. He learned to be God's deliverer, not Israel's oppressor. He learned to be God's friend and not Pharaoh's flatterer. And when Peter encourages us to have this same attitude as Moses when it comes to not fearing what others think when we make the decisions that we do as a Christian, convinced by our encounter with the invisible God. You know, just looking on this morning, Rod's laughing, people are shaking, people are on their knees, convinced of an encounter with an invisible God. I mean, just think about it. I mean, you might be a non-Christian here this morning, you just come along with a friend or something, We understand it looks bonkers. Have you ever thought about how that looks? People seem to be meeting with someone, yet there's nobody they seem to be, like he's he's invisible. But if you're a Christian, something's happened, doesn't it? You've met with God. Yeah? You're convinced, aren't you? We're not like irrational, actually bonkers, if you know what I mean. You know, (laughs) like we understand, you know, reasonable people, but... We've had an encounter with God, the invisible God. The reality of him has become very real to us. And so we make decisions we otherwise probably wouldn't have. 
Peter uh, writes this, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. The people persecuting, uh, deriding their faith, um, giving them a hard time. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That Christ was also mocked. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And if we don't have this attitude of Moses making decisions convinced of the reality of the invisible God, not fearing what others say, we become vulnerable to the ups and downs of other people's approval and opinions. If you're not utterly convinced of the encounter that you've had with with God, invisible God, you can just be subject to doing whatever's easier, making the decisions which other people will approve of, that will just mean you fit in a bit easier. You know what it's like when you're at work or you're out with friends? Something's going on that you, you, you need to refuse and say no to in conversation, maybe not just be a part of, say something different to what everyone else is agreeing with. It's difficult, isn't it? And if in that moment you're not utterly convinced of your encounter with the invisible God, it'd be so easy just to say, just to kind of fit in. Oh, you know, that kind of nervous, oh, I'm kind of agreeing with you, but I wish I had the strength to say something else. Be utterly convinced of the invisible God. And uh, finally, by faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. I mean, it's entirely relevant, isn't it, from our perspective. After Jesus' death and resurrection, it's really clear why God asked them to smear the blood of goats and sheep on doorposts, isn't it? On the vertical and horizontal frames of their doorposts, isn't it? It's quite clearly representative of the blood that Jesus would shed on the cross, that Jesus' blood would protect us from death, which we deserved, that God's wrath was on us. God is angry with us for our sin, the things we'd done wrong, for our rebellion against him, for turning away from him, ignoring him, treating him with disdain. But Jesus' blood covers us, He dies the death that we deserve to die for our sin. His blood protects us and covers us so that death passes over us. And death for us is not anything big. We just kind of pass from this life into eternity with him. It's obvious from our perspective, isn't it? But for Moses and the Israelites, it it would have appeared madness. Imagine Moses speaks to these, they're not spirit-filled people, this is just the people of God. And he says to them, kill a sheep or goat, paint its blood on your doorposts. Excuse me? (laughs) You'd like me to do what? And he persuaded the Israelites to do that. Imagine that conversation with a neighbour. Hi there, Bill. How you doing? Or whatever the name was. Hi, Bill. How you doing? Yeah, yeah, James, it's it's bin day. You haven't forgotten today. Yeah, yeah, it's bin day. What are you you doing? Is Is that lamb's blood you're painting on your door? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Was that? Um, you know, Moses, um, guy used to be part of Pharaoh's court, um, said we should paint it on our doorposts. Why is that? Uh, death is going to pass over the land tonight, and all the firstborn children, uh, male children, are going to be are going to die. So we're painting. And yet there they are, painting their doorposts. 
looked utter madness. But now, Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We've been saved by the wrath of, from the wrath of God because of Jesus' blood. Uh, if the band want to come back up, we're going to worship in a second. So how do we, though, keep the Passover? How do you keep the Passover now? Because, I mean, sometimes you might actually literally keep the Passover. You know, sometimes Christians get together around the Passover time, don't they? And they share the meal to kind of give us a bit of an idea of what was going on in Scripture there. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. How are we to celebrate the Passover festival? Well, I think it's this, celebrating that the judgment of God has passed over us as we trust in Jesus' blood shed on the cross for us. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. What an amazing verse. No condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Any of you in Christ Jesus this morning? There is no condemnation over you. Every time you've grabbed that apple, every time you foolishly held on to it, got captured, engrossed in sin, and time and again went back to it, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We really deserve the consequences of our sin. We all deserve death. But because of Jesus' blood over us, shed on the cross for us, we're protected from death. It's going to pass over us and we're going to enjoy eternity for him. So our lives are to be lived as this joyful festival of gratitude to God, hatred of sin, refusal of it, choosing to commit to God's people, looking forward to his reward, focusing on the reality of our invisible God, breaking bread regularly to remind ourselves that because of Jesus' blood shed on the cross, we're spared God's wrath, which we deserved. Isn't that good news? So, should we stand? We're going to sing and surrender all to God. Just say, Lord, we surrender all to you. You're the one who has spared us the death that we deserved. Your wrath has passed over us because you've sent your son, Jesus, to die on a cross in our place. His blood shed for us to protect us from what we deserved and what we say in response Lord is that have our lives we surrender all to you the madness of the decision of following you of choosing life with you and all that comes with it we surrender it all and say Lord we're living for you thank you for your forgiveness of our sins thank you that you've protected us by your son's blood Lord we're so grateful to you we surrender our lives to you. Have it all, we pray in Jesus' name.